please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. If you were to Google the words, white Christmas synopsis, here's what you would find at the top of that page. Singers Bob Wallace, played by the Incredible Bing Crosby and Phil Davis, Danny Kaye, join sister act Betty and Judy Haynes to perform a Christmas show in rural Vermont. There, they run into General Waverly, the boys' commander in World War II, who they learn is having financial difficulties. His quaint country inn is failing. So what's the foursome to do but plan a yuletide miracle? A fun-filled musical extravaganza that's sure to put Waverly and his business Back in the Black. <laughs> White Christmas is a fantastic movie and a must-watch during the holiday season. Songs, dances that just scream Christmas and nostalgia. I mean, Bing Crosby's voice is Christmas. And while this Google summary captures the major movements of the plot, it does fail to capture a key element that marks the film. And that is one of remembrance. This is seen throughout the film in two ways, the first being petty, of course. Phil Davis saves Bob Wallace's life during a German attack in the war, receiving an injury, and does not let Bob forget it. He uses this to his advantage from the start, constantly reminding Bob in the not-so-subtle ways of his terrible cost that it was to save his life, and so accomplishes his goal of joining Bob's singing act back home. But this theme of remembrance it actually undergirds the entire film. When they discover the general and his failing lodge, it is a remembrance of all that he did for them in the war that becomes their chief motivation to help save the lodge. It's not unique to them either. That same motivation, that same remembrance moves all the men who served General Waverly to travel to, all the way up to cold Vermont in order to declare, we'll follow the old man wherever he wants to go because we love him. Remembrance. These men were bound to their gentle. They were bound to him in such a way that the remembrance of their service to him and really ultimately his service to them in leading them through the war safely, it led them to honor and thank him. We do this, don't we? Anniversaries, birthdays, Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving, Memorial Day. These are annual holidays where we set aside time to think of other people and to honor them. And here in Exodus chapter 12, fresh on the heels of the first Passover instructions, we see the Lord calling his people to remember what it is he is about to do and to give honor and ultimately worship to him. So out of reverence for this word, would you please rise if you are able as I read Exodus chapter 12, 14 through 28. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. 
On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your house. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt. When he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we, we are a forgetful people. relying on you this morning to open our eyes to see you, to see you crucified, crushed on our behalf so that we might become sons of God. Help us this morning, we ask, that we might receive by faith. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Exodus chapters 7 through 11 could be summarized or titled as God versus Pharaoh. This battle, if we can call it that, is essentially a battle answering the key question, who is the Lord? Is it Pharaoh or is it this Hebrew God? That that question, which were actually the very first words recorded of Pharaoh in Exodus 5-2, is then answered by God in Exodus 6, 6 6-8. Look at what it says. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land I swore to give to Abraham. 
to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So this is not ambiguous, right? God is not hiding the ball here. Before a single plague is released on the Egyptians, before the bell even rings for round one, Pharaoh and God, between Pharaoh and God, the Lord has won. He has, as Pastor Ryan said just a few weeks ago, called his shot. This is not a battle where the outcome is uncertain. The Lord has other plans for this squirmish, namely to reveal himself as Lord to the watching world and to secure for himself his people who will honor and worship him as Savior and Lord. And as the plague narrative takes off, as we off, we inevitably pick up on the fact that there are key elements that happen throughout the telling of the ten plagues. A sort of rhythm is found. Warnings, hardenings and rejections, plagues, requests for relief, relief, rejection. And if you were to delete this section, Exodus chapter 12, 1 through 28, from the Bible, the plague narrative would go on uninterrupted. There is a warning. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. The plague is executed, but this time with a new outcome. Pharaoh's back is finally broken, and the people exit the bonds of slavery just as God had said. So there is something unique about this tenth and final plague, and there is something important about Exodus 1 through 28. And the fact that Exodus 12, 1 through 28, interrupts the narrative flow informs us, it, it clues us in that We are to pay special and careful attention to what is being said here. Exodus 12, 1 through 28 is a single literary unit that changes everything. What is recorded here will affect every aspect of the relationship between the sovereign Lord and his people. The unit consists of two speeches. One, the Lord speaking to Aaron and Moses, chapter 12, 1 through 20, and Moses and Aaron communicating that word from the Lord to the people. It's verse 21 through 28. Last week, Greg covered a significant part of that opening stanza of the speech, which functions as almost a summary of the whole unit. Namely, God will act to save his people. And not only will he save them from the bondage of slavery, under the tyrannical Pharaoh, but he will save them from his own divine and just wrath. And he will provide a substitute in order to purchase for himself a people. So here, Exodus 14 through 28, the Lord fills out the implications of his sovereign grace. And here's what I believe Moses means to communicate to us in this section. The Lord purchases our salvation in order to secure our worship. The Lord, he purchases our salvation in order to secure our worship. So as we walk through the rest of this section, we're going to unpack the different aspects of our salvation that lead to worship. And I think we can derive the following commands from the Lord from this passage. First, remember your deliverance. Second, be made holy, proclaim his salvation, and finally, worship the Lord. First, remember your deliverance. It's worth looking back and recalling the instructions the Lord gave 
for the Passover in Exodus 12, 1 through 13. The Israelites were to take an unblemished lamb from the flock, slay it without breaking its bones, roast the meat, sprinkle the blood on the door frames of their homes. The angel of the Lord, the destroyer, would see this blood and pass over. The lamb was to be completely eaten by the family, and if there were any leftovers, they were to be burned. And after giving the Passover instructions, the Lord now demands that they not only perform this sacrifice once, but that it would function as a memorial day. There is something going on here that the Lord does not want his people to miss or forget. And the fact that this is to be a statute forever cements his intentions. We are to remember what God is doing here. And what is it he's doing? Saving, purchasing, delivering his people, not only from the bondage of Pharaoh, but from their own sinful Egyptianized hearts. Scholar Bruce Waltke highlights this well when he says, The severity and the universality of the tenth plague, its manner of accomplishment by a direct act of God instead of by Moses' staff, the breaking of Pharaoh's hard heart, leading to Israelites' commencement of a new way of life, and the unique celebration of the tenth plague as a lasting ordinance, underscores the importance of the event in Old Testament theology. None can escape this final and decisive divine judgment on wickedness. No pharaoh, no deity, no status can provide protection. Not even Israel is exempt from the Passover. Not even Israel is exempt apart from the Passover blood, for they too have been unfaithful. Deliverance rests solely on Israel's trusting God's Passover provision. Israel is delivered because a death that satisfied God's wrath, has been made and applied by faith. The Passover is the Old Testament paradigm for our salvation. And at the heart of the Passover is sacrifice and substitution. That's what the Passover is. A sovereign, gracious, merciful act of God by which he perfectly executes his justice while not destroying the objects of his justice, his people. The wrath of God needed to be satisfied. Blood needed to be shed. And we might be tempted to think, since the name of this event is a Passover, that all the angel of God did was pass over the people. And while that may be true, we must not fail to recognize why it was possible for the destroyer to pass over and not enter the home. Because blood had to be shed. The wrath of God did not just pass over the people, It was actively put on the lamb. And the aim of the sacrifice and of the substitution is not just to not destroy Israel, but the purpose of communion, one of fellowship. The Lord is saving them in order to dwell with them. Notice that this sacrifice is unique in that the sacrifice immediately becomes a celebratory meal, with the sacrifice itself being the main course. And what is a meal other than fellowship? The one being sacrificed to suddenly becomes the host of a great feast. The Lord is purchasing for himself a people with whom he could dwell and have fellowship with. And this deliverance is what is to be remembered through a yearly Passover feast. Every year, the people would sacrifice a lamb and feast to the Lord to remind themselves Remind themselves of the saving works of God. This is such 
a kindness from the Lord. He really does know our frame. He knows that these Israelites were likely to quickly forget all that the Lord had done. And aren't we just like the Israelites? How regularly do you, how regularly do I think on the saving work of God in our lives? What would be the effect? What would be the effect if I daily considered the price the Father paid? Namely, the spotless Lamb of God, Christ Jesus, His Son, in order that I might be reconciled to God. I, I don't know about you, I often feel like Jill Pohl at the beginning of the silver chair. When Aslan gives her the four signs to follow in order to make her and Eustace's uh, task of finding the lost prince easier, he urges to remember, remember, remember the signs. Say them to yourselves when you wake in the mornings and when you lie down at night and when you wake in the middle of the night. And secondly, I give you a warning. Here on the mountain, the air is clear and your mind is clear. And as you drop into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind. It seems like there are times throughout our years, times like Christmas and Thanksgiving and Easter, and even times throughout our weeks, the gathering, this Sunday morning when we go to missional communities, huddles, when the air seems to clear. We're surrounded by loved ones, sweet gospel community. The gospel seems clear, beautiful, magnificent, but then I go home, I go to work, my kids are screaming, I'm passed over for a promotion that I, I feel like I deserve, and the air just seems to thicken. Frustrations and anxieties and sufferings, they, they come at me. I find myself not thinking on the saving works of God, but rather my circumstances and the difficulties within. We are prone to forget, prone to wander. Don't we feel it? But the Lord does not forget. Recall all the way back in Exodus 2, 24 and 25. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Remember, when God remembers something, it doesn't mean that it, it slipped his mind. and We're just to say, oh, oh yeah, that's right, I forgot about those guys. No, rather it means he's about to act, to accomplish his purposes. And act, he does. He's the one who saves Moses from the waters. He's the one who calls Moses in the Median Desert. He's the one who tells Moses that he will execute his wonders in Egypt in order to be known as the Lord. He is acting decisively, and now he calls us, his forgetful people, to remember. When troubles come, when suffering threatens to overwhelm me, thinking on the cross has a humbling and stabilizing effect on my soul. In the midst of troubling circumstances, look to Christ, the founder, the author, the perfecter of our faith. Like Peter, when he stepped out on the water, look not to the wind and the waves around you, but fix your eyes on Christ. He is the spotless a lamb that was slain for you and me. And it is to that slain lamb that we will forever be singing. Revelation 5, 12. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
That's who we sing to. And it should be noted, and I think this applies to all of these derived commands from the passage, that the best remedy to forgetfulness is found in community. Notice these instructions. The feasts and the statutes were given to the new nation, the people, the assembly of Israel, to a certain people. They had to be, that these commands had to be obeyed individually, but enjoyed corporately. Being in gospel community is a particular means of grace from the Lord to help clear away the fog of our daily lives and help us stir one another to fix our eyes on Christ and to remember what he has done for each of us. So today, this week, this month, and ultimately this year, remember the Lord and his deliverance of you. Secondly, be made holy. So the first Passover saved the people of God from the wrath of God, and the angel of the Lord passed over them, satisfied by the blood of the substituted lamb. And the people are called to remember the Lord's Passover, and they are to do it with a meal. Now, that meal, as we've seen, highlights the fellowship of the Passover lamb secured between God and his people. But from this point on, the Lord means to teach his people A result of being saved to being in communion with him is to be made holy. They have been made holy and they are continuing to be. They must continue to be holy. The blood of the lamb provides purification. and Now the Lord institutes another festival, the feast of the unleavened bread. This is to be an ongoing statute, another gracious means by which the Lord provides so that they will remember this day. Look at Exodus 12, 17. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. Why? For on this very day, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. These twin festivals, the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread, they illustrate God saving his people and calling them to be holy. In theological terms, this is justification, sanctification. The two sides of the coin of the Christian life, repentance and faith, turning away from the slavery of sin by the saving power of God and towards the promises of God in Christ Jesus. And why unleavened bread? Throughout the Bible, leaven, a fermented substance like like yeast that causes the dough to rise, is used as a metaphor for sin. It's an excellent metaphor for showing how one substance can be totally and entirely affected by another substance. Fermentation was seen as representing decay, death, and has a corrupting effect on the soul. And this quality, that of death and decay, made it inconsistent with the holiness of God. Philip Ryken explains the metaphor this way. He says, yeast is an appropriate symbol for sin because of the way it grows and it spreads. As yeast ferments, It works its way all through the dough. Sin works the same way, which is why the Bible makes this comparison. Sin is always trying to extend its corruption, influence through a person's entire life. But God has something better in mind for his people. He's saving them to sanctify them. So before they left Egypt, he wanted to make a clean sweep. 
The Lord is teaching his people, even through the food that they eat, who he is and who they now are, holy, sanctified, set apart. It's these features that mark the people of God. Look at what the penalty is for eating any leaven during this festival time. Moses repeats it twice, once in verse 15 and once in 19. They are to be cut off from the people of God. The Lord is cleansing his people, purifying them through the blood of the sacrificed lamb and ridding them of the leaven that has now worked its way into the hearts into the hearts in Egypt, namely sin. The Israelites could not purify themselves. Only God could do that. But now that he has, he calls them to a new life. This eating also speaks to the complete nature of the salvation and this new way of life. If eating leavened bread resulted in being cut off from the people of God, then eating unleavened bread resulted in belonging to the people of God. The meals involved in both the Passover feast and the feast of the unleavened bread speak to the need for the provision of God to be ingested, to be taken in to our whole beings. We are to eat of the bread of life, the only thing that will satisfy us. Paul picks up this theme in the New Testament when he writes in Ephesians 4, Now this I say, and I testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of hearts. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you learned in Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to be put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Do not live as the Gentiles did. You could almost switch out Gentiles for Egyptians and heed Paul's call to no longer walk in the futility of their minds and hardness of heart. Who's that sound like? But rather take off that old, wicked, Egyptian man and put on the new one that has been remade in Christ, the perfect, spotless lamb. This is the way of the Christian life. Because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, making us alive and reconciling us to God the Father, we are now able to walk in this newness of life, ridding ourselves of the sin that corrupts and affects our bodies and turning by faith to the one who has paid the price of our salvation. Number three, proclaim his salvation. The remembering that the Lord calls the people to is not just recall what has been done, but to proclaim it as well. Remember and proclaim. After the Lord finishes his instructions to Aaron and Moses, Moses calls all the elders of Israel together and proclaims the word of the Lord to them. And inherent in these instructions is that there will be something that the people will be talking about forever. Notice what Moses says in Exodus 12, 26. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the house of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared 
our houses. When your children ask you. When, not if. This event, this Passover, would have such a dramatic effect that time and history were not going to forget it. And to, and to be sure, God institutes a holiday, a memorial day that's built in the way to tell your children about the wondrous works of God. I can remember the first time Adeline observed and was old enough to know what was going on with the Lord's Supper. The elements went by her in her little face, and she just watched and stared as it went by. And when the bread came through, she grabbed for it, and I stopped her, and she looked at me confused. A few minutes later, I was walking her to the bathroom, and I took a moment to pull her aside and explain to her in ways that she could understand what she had just witnessed, to remind her of the story of Jesus that she had been taught, and how when Jesus died for our sins, his body broken and his blood shed in our place, by taking and eating, we're remembering and proclaiming that he did that for you and for me. It's incredible to see her eyes get big as she processed what I was saying. Now, of course, she didn't fully grasp or understand the theological nuances of the Lord's Supper, but the next time the Lord's Supper came through, she knew enough to know that this is no ordinary snack. But there is something bigger going on. Psalm 78, 4 through 7 says this, We will not hide them from our children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn. And arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but to keep his commandments. In his providence, the Lord has given us ample opportunities to tell our kids of the wondrous things he has done. This is a sweet grace from the Lord. We have long established rhythms as Christians, don't we? Personal Bible reading, family devotions, coming to church, singing, taking the Lord's Supper, witnessing baptisms, going to our missional communities, so on. There will come a time when our children ask us, why do we do these things? Do not waste those opportunities to tell your kids of the glorious deeds of the Lord and of his might and the wonders he has done. And to all you parents of little ones, particularly moms of little ones, your faithfulness and your steadfastness in just showing up is teaching, shaping, molding your children in ways that we cannot now see, but trust will bear fruit. So be encouraged and don't lose heart. Look at what Paul promises in Galatians 6. Whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So don't give up, but proclaim his salvation, particularly to your children. And finally, number four, worship the Lord. 
Exodus 12, 27, tells us that after the Lord had given his instructions to Aaron and Moses, and after Moses had communicated this to the elders and to the people of Israel, the effect that this had on the people was they bowed their heads and worshipped. Imagine you're an Israelite. In that assembly, the day the Lord, or that day Moses gathers you together and declares to you what the Lord is about to do. You have witnessed plague after plague strike the Egyptians, and you have been spared. But now you hear news that this final plague, this life-threatening plague is coming, and it is falling on everyone. The holy, perfect, just wrath of God executed on all who have sinned. And the horrifying reality that you are one of the deserving ones. Imagine your emotions, the scenes. And then to hear Moses declare, God has made a way. He has provided a substitute. Go, follow these instructions. Feast on this meal. Celebrate, rejoice, and don't forget what the Lord has done here. What joy, what serious joy must have broken out among the people. Adoration, praise, thanksgiving, all pouring out because God himself had acted. And this, my friends, this has been the purpose of the plagues themselves from the very beginning. To secure a people who would worship, feast, and serve the Lord. Look back with me at some of the petitions Moses and Aaron made to Pharaoh to let his people go. The first one, Exodus 5.1, the first encounter with Pharaoh. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Skip ahead to 8.1, the frogs. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go in to Pharaoh, say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. The, the NIV translates that, Worship me. The very same purpose, that of service and worship, is given in 8.20 with the flies, 9.1 with the livestock, 9.13 with the hail, and 10 verse 3 with the locust. This has always been the plan. Even all the way back in Exodus chapter 3, when the Lord first appears to Moses in the burning bush, he says in verse 10, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, but I will be with you, and this will be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve, worship God on this mountain. My friends, it has always been a question of worship. It always has been, and it always will be. It's not whether, but which. It's not whether you will worship, but which God you will worship and serve. And the Lord revealed himself to Pharaoh, the supposed God on earth, to show his might and his rule is supreme, that he alone is the Lord. And the Lord revealed himself to his people to show his power and his might, and also, even more dramatically, to save them from their own sins. He is drawing them out of Egypt in order to draw them to himself. He is showing over and over and over again that he is worthy to be worshipped. The Israelites' worship gave way to obedience. They worshipped and they obeyed down to the very last detail. They are beginning to see that this God 
keeps his promises. And he has promised to save them. And so they act. And they act by faith. Trusting that the God who promised judgment and salvation will keep his word. Like Noah and the flood, they hear his warnings of the coming judgment, receive the promise of salvation, and lay hold of it by faith. The saving works of God are at the very center of their worship, and it is at the very center of our worship. Moses received the word of the Lord. He proclaimed the word of the Lord to his people. They receive it by faith, and they worshiped, and they obeyed. And that's what we do here. We preach the word. Notice how irrelevant the messenger is here, how he he doesn't change or twist what God said, just delivers it and applies it. And we respond by faith and obedience and worship. And there is joy in our worship, particularly in our singing. This is why we here at Emmaus Road Church, we sing the type of songs that we do. We love to sing about what the Lord has done for us in Christ Jesus as revealed in God's word, the gospel, the life, the death, the resurrection of the spotless son of God who suffered in our place so we can be free from the wrath of God that our sin deserves and to be free to worship him. That's what fuels our worship. It fuels every aspect of our worship. What else do we have? Just think on the songs we sang this morning. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Oh, my soul praise him for he is my health and salvation. This is how we remember the mystery of the cross. I cannot comprehend the agonies of Calvary. You, the perfect Holy One, crushed your son and drank the bitter cup reserved for me. Your blood has washed away my sin. My Father's wrath completely satisfied. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. Come rejoice, my soul, for his love is my reward. Fear is gone, hope is sure. Christ is mine forevermore. This is how we remember. We remember and we proclaim and we do it together. These are, these are songs worth singing, not because of the tune, not because of the singer, but because of the Savior it describes the one who is infinitely worthy of our praise. And when we, gather on, when we gather on Sundays, the air seems clear. But this afternoon, Monday quickly approaching, problems and, and sufferings and hard circumstances waiting, the air will seem to thicken. But it's in those moments, remember, remember, remember your salvation and sing of the mercies of the salvation of your Lord. Peter says it best when he says in 1 Peter 1, 3-9, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Oh God, we need you. How quick we are to forget. The air often seems thick. We feel lost in the fog. And all we see are the hurt, the suffering, unmet expectations, dreams, lost, grief. But God, your word separates all of that. It clears away all the fog. And, and you have given us graciously instances and, and moments and days to, to remember rhythms of grace that you've poured out from heaven to remind us of your saving work. God, may your spirit move amongst us. We need it. May it keep our eyes fixed on Christ, the spotless lamb, crushed in our place so that we might receive his righteousness. All we have is Christ. We have nothing else. So we cling to him this morning, resting in him today, tomorrow, this week, and throughout our lives, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.